You're listening to Reframe Your Life. This is episode 124. And today, Patty and I are here with Emily Yurkart. Emily is a National Magazine award-winning writer and has a doctorate in folklore from Memorial University of Newfoundland. Her first book, Beyond the Pale, Folklore, Family, and the Mystery of Our Hidden Genes was a Maclean's bestseller, a finalist for the BC National Award for Canadian Nonfiction, and a Globe and Mail Best Book of 2015. Her freelance writing has appeared in the Toronto Star, The Walrus Magazine, Long Reads, The Rumpus, and 18 Bridges, among other publications. She's a nonfiction editor for the New Quarterly and teaches creative nonfiction at Wilfrid Laurier University. She lives in Kitchener, Ontario with her husband and their two children. And Patty, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book we're going to talk about today? I can't wait. Uh, Welcome, Emily. The Age of Creativity, Art, Memory, My Father and Me was published in September of this year. Another COVID publication. I know we're going to get to speak about how, how it feels to have books published during this crazy time. The Age of Creativity is a moving portrait of a father and daughter relationship. Emily challenges the too common societal presumption that artistic output declines in old age. When she and her family celebrated the 80th birthday of her father, the painter and sculptor Tony Urquhart, she found it remarkable that although his pace had slowed, he was continuing his daily art practice of drawing, painting, and constructing large-scale sculptures. He was even innovating his style. With the eye of a memoirist and the curiosity of a journalist and the heart of a daughter, I might add, Urquhart began an investigation into late stage creativity using her father and her art history as an inspiration, her love of art history as an inspiration. The Age of Creativity deftly blends her own knowledge of art and art history with research on aging and creativity and her experiences living and traveling with her father. Emily Urquhart reveals how creative work, both amateur and professional, sustains people in the third act of their lives and tells a new story about the possibilities of elderhood, one we welcome. And welcome to you, Emily. Thanks for being here with us. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's an honor. It's great to have you. And we've been starting out with what I call the COVID question. And I mm-hmm. try to tailor it a little bit to the the guest. And I was thinking about, you know, the, the obvious would be to talk about aging and COVID because that's such a big part of this pandemic right now. But I was thinking this morning about how creativity yours or in general has been impacted by living in a pandemic and what your thoughts are has COVID been good for us creatively or is it just like are we suffering (laughs) (laughs) that's interesting because I think the answer uh, can go both ways there there seems to be a proliferation of creativity happening in COVID whether it is like perfecting your sourdough bread or (laughs) um in my case, I wasn't really able to write during the lockdown and actually even into the summer because suddenly my kids were with me at all times of the day. But I started doing a lot more drawing because it turns out that is something you can do with your kids by your side. <laughs> I learned that from my dad maybe. But um, yeah, and so so it's sort of those kind of limitations sometimes force you to be creative in new ways. But I think there's also this idea, and I remember this happening, you know, March, April, where people are like, this is great for me. I'm going to write my magnum opus now. Uh (laughs) And this is just perfect. 
And I was like, yeah, yeah, for, you know, no, not for me. So, or people who have kids or who are caregivers or even who are just plain just stressed out and can't stop focusing on the pandemic. And so then I think there was that pressure on creative people to have some kind of amazing creative output. And, um, and, and they just didn't. The pressure was too much or the stress was too much. So I think it's, it really depends on the person. I think definitely it's, it's it was actually in some ways very fertile creatively. Um, for me, maybe nothing that I'll ever put out into the world, but that's okay too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's been my experience as well, that it's been creative. Uh, creatively, I've experienced it differently than I imagined I would experience it creatively. So it's it's taken me in a little bit of a different direction. So I appreciate that, um, your thoughts on that. It's definitely an interesting time we live in. And you you mentioned the limitations and how that's pushed you creatively. And immediately I thought about that from your book, because you yes. talk about aging as a limitation that pushes us creatively. And I know I have a question about that somewhere, but let's just jump into that because it seemed like a good place to go after you answered that. How do, so your book, I love that you talk so much about aging because I'm a woman in her early sixties and I'm just writing my first book and I had so many people recommend your book to me <laughs> as um, you probably would really enjoy this book because I think we feel limitations um, about our, or at least I have about being a late bloomer or is it too, am I too old to start writing now? And I really liked what you had to say. So do you want to talk a little bit about that, about limitations and aging and creativity? Well, first, that's wonderful to hear that people are suggesting my book to you. <laughs> but I loved hearing that. Um, I, you know, I do think that all creative people need limitations. I think that, that we need to sort of push up against those limitations in order to find new avenues to go forward in our creativity, whatever it is, whether it's writing or visual art or, um, or music. And, and so I think because of the stereotypes that we have about aging, um, and aging and creativity, we kind of assume that the limitations that can happen naturally with the challenges of, of aging are, are complete barriers, whereas yes. other limitations in our life just open up new avenues. And so I think we just need to get past that stereotypical type of thinking. And then we can realize that actually um, one of the examples I use in the book is, is Georgia O'Keeffe, who uh, in her 80s was starting to go blind. And she uh, she painted her her last unassisted oil painting called The Beyond, which is very beautiful, the sort of horizon and her biographers interpret it as her thinking her career is over really, you know, like this is it for this woman, the beyond, she's looking clearly at the afterlife there because she can't paint anymore. So she's really just thinking about death. And the reality is, is that she just went on and, and, and focused on sculpture instead. And it wasn't, you know, she had, she had made sculptures before in her life. It wasn't her first time um, turning to this medium, but that's what she turned to because it was more about touch and it was, a, she was able to, and she kept creating for almost another decade in this medium. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think it's important not to see these kind of aging related um, limitations as barriers to creativity. Mm. And I love that in your book. I was thinking, you know, you have two young children and I had read somewhere and maybe you came across this research that our attitudes towards aging and elderly people are set by the time we're five years old. 
And I wondered if you'd read anything about that or how as um, a mom, you're intentionally working to expand your own kids views on aging and creativity. I had not heard that, but that is quite profound, isn't it? Five years mm -hmm. old. Um, I, that would probably explain a lot of why it's the ageism is so ingrained in our society, mm -hmm. especially if how we feel about aging is negative by the time we're five, which it probably is. Um, with my own children, they spend a lot of time with my dad, which is great. I, I should add my dad and my mom have a 15 year age gap. So he is, he is in a different sort of senior category than my mother. Yes. And um, so they also spend a lot of time with my mom, but um, they do spend, um, you know, some good quality time with my dad and they always have my daughter's almost 10 now. So for the past 10 years, they've been making art together and my son has joined them. And that's a lot of how I spent my time mm -hmm. with my dad and my childhood as well. Um, I'm hoping that that relationship can act as kind of a, a beacon for them for how we we interact with our elders and how, you know, how much they have to, to give and share. And in terms of my own childhood, I, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and also with my grandparents' friends and all my great aunts and uncles. And, and so I think I was brought up in, in a space where I was really interested in older adults and I spent a lot of time with them and I was kind of an only child too. So it's not like I had other kids to run off and play with. And right. so, <laughs> so anyhow, I, I did get quite an education in what it means to um, grow old and, and, and how much, how many stories were there really in terms of once you get to that point in your life. Yeah, and I do think that's a big part of it. I will let Patty speak at some point, but <laughs> <No>. <laughs> because I think that um, I've noticed as I age, I've been coming, becoming a little bit aware of this, that some people are really comfortable with people that are older than them, yes, and some people aren't. And I know you talk about this in your book about um, the fundamental, this, I'm going to quote you, the fundamental misunderstanding of our time is that we belong to one age group or another. We all grow old. There is no us and them. There was only ever an us. And it seems to me that's, that yeah. some people really get that, that, and then other people are, feel very detached from people who aren't in their peer group or their age group. And I, you know, so I really appreciate your response there. Mm. Oh, good. Yeah. I, you know, I was going to say, I feel like that is a North American thing as well, where we really segregate people into their peer age groups. Yes. I spend a lot of time or I have spent a lot of time in my life in Ireland. And I don't find that in Ireland, that is the same case. It's very intergenerational in terms of who you spend time with and where, you know, you go to the country pub and it's, everyone from the babies to the great grandparents and they're all there yes. together. It's, it, it, there's lots of a fear of death in Ireland too. I don't know if it's connected, but <laughs> yeah. well, I have an aunt, my mom's from Ireland. I have an aunt, young Margaret. And when I met her for the first time 20 years ago, she was 70. Oh, wow. <laughs> and her name I've is always young Margaret. We could they call <laughs> Margaret. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> okay, I want to be young Patty. Can we be young Patty and Sandy and young Emily for the for the show? Like, I love that. You know, I hadn't thought about this before, and it's a bit early to ask it, but you know, 
you're um, you're a champion of the isms, right? I mean, your first book, you know, and stigma, as you know, is my passion and what I write about and continuing to write about putting out a series of kids books about, but, you know, the champion of the ism, I wondered, and you can speak more to that to the extent that you want to speak about your other book, but I wondered, was there a nugget of gold somewhere where you thought, I'm going to write about how dad defies all of our preconceptions about what an artist should be like aging. Was there a moment, an epiphany moment where you said, I'm going to write about this because I've got something to say on this. Did you feel that championship feeling burning through? I did. Yeah, absolutely. It was um, exactly four years ago. I, I know the day because we actually had been at a memorial service for a family friend. And it was in Toronto and I was there with my parents and my, my mom, it was her close friend. So she went off with some girlfriends for lunch and I went with my dad to the art gallery of Ontario. And um, at that point, my dad was in his early eighties. He was 82. And he, I had noticed people starting to refer to him as remarkable, which is, you know, he is remarkable. He's remarkably talented and he always has been, but I sensed that remarkable was code for peculiar. Like it was peculiar yes. that he was continuing to be creative and create new work and to innovate. And um, so that was already on my mind. But uh, once we got to the AGO, my dad took me to the second floor of the gallery and showed me a painting that he had done in his early twenties. And I was unable to recognize it, which is unusual for me. I really, I know my dad's work really like a language. So um mm. I just, it's strange that I couldn't recognize it. And he was sort of, you know, treating it like he was critiquing a student of his or something saying, well, this is immature, this work. And I thought at that moment, well, this is strange because my dad at 82 is a better painter than he was at uh, 23 or whatever, right. you know, his early twenties. And I thought, well, but that's against, that goes against everything that I've ever believed about aging. And then I thought, why? <laughs> you know, why, why do I believe this? Is it even true? And I, it really was a moment for me. And I really, it was, it, it, it became a big question for me that I needed to answer. And I remember even, um, I, I live in Kitchener and I took the GO train home on my own and I started, you know, Googling this question and making notes about it right on the GO train. Like, Wonderful. do we get less creative as, as we age? Is this true? And then I just, it was like a dog with a bone after that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, and I, I absolutely, I love that. And that theme running through it. And of course I've flagged it like crazy. These <laughs> scenes where you um, observe your father, but you don't analyze him for us, which is to me, the skill of a memoirist is to plant the scene squarely in our minds, but not tell us what you want us to think about it. And can I say there that one of my favorite moments is when your dad is at whichever museum and he's fiddling with his own sculpture right in the museum. Yes. <laughs> I, I think I felt, I think I fell in love with your father in that moment because you say something like, oh my God, what are the museum people thinking right now? <laughs> Who's this guy fiddling with the sculptures? You're not supposed to touch the sculptures. In fact, you said something like um, I, that you could, picture, you could picture a garbled message that you couldn't catch of somebody saying something like, there's an old guy fiddling with a sculpture. <laughs> the scene was no doubt familiar to the museum people, but not so familiar <laughs> for other people. I love that your father wanted to still see his art portrayed in a different way, no matter what age and uh, stage of his life he produced it at, he had that paternal instinct that he wanted to see it portrayed differently. And that gave me a different 
view of of artists because to see to him that his art would constantly be changing and that it was never fixed just because he was done that he wanted to see it shown in a different way it's uh, that use of scene is a powerful one i think why we have these lumps in our throats but you as a champion for your father but also against ageism that's how you did it for us and i thought that was that was a hard one triumph for you in the book that you were able to make us see our own ageism without saying, hey, do you guys see that you're doing this too? You pointed the finger at us without making us feel guilty. And I, uh, oh, I, thought, that was, I thought that was well done. I thought that was very well Thank done. Thank you. Thank you. You spent a lot of time in museums with your father in this book, huh? Yes, that's, um, that was a, a good portion of my life. Um, as a child, I, I, you know, my dad went to Europe every year and we sometimes went with him and sometimes he would go for the whole year. And again, you know, as a child, you just have to go and do what your parents are doing. When I was very small, I had terrible temper tantrums. I've heard about them. There were two. Uh, the, the worst one was under the Sistine Chapel ceiling. <laughs> but I But I grew to enjoy going to galleries with my dad. And in some ways it was you know, I have a friend who said her mother was always in the kitchen. She was a, she was constantly creating things in the kitchen, always in the kitchen. If you wanted to spend time with your mom, you had to go and help her in the kitchen and be there with her. And that was very much like with my dad. Like he was always in the studio. He was always making things. And when he was on these trips in Europe, he was also, you know, outside sketching, but also in, in the museums. And if you want to spend time with dad, that's how you do it. And, and as I got older, I started to really enjoy spending that type of time with my dad. Mm. I really enjoyed your um, talk about traveling with your dad. And yeah. I, I was thinking, you know, we interviewed Jane Christmas and she wrote a book called Incontinent on the Continent about a trip <laughs> with her elderly mother. And then also Alison Waring, who wrote about her trip to Ireland with her father in his 80s. And my, my dad died from Lewy body dementia a couple of years ago. And um, before he got ill, I went to Newfoundland with him, which is where he was born and did a trip with him, which is one of my uh, best memories of my dad. And I, I like the question that you asked in the book when you were wondering who the trip was for when you went to New York with your dad. Was it for him or was it for you? And I, I'd love it if you would just share your conclusion about that. I, yeah, it, you know, that's just before I answer, it's really interesting that trend that of, of, you know, with the elderly parent going back, it's that journey that we want to take with them to, to just mm -hmm. be with them and, mm -hmm. you know, going, you going with your dad to Newfoundland and um, it's, you just, you're trying to hold on to a piece of their history because you know, yeah. you know, it, it's not going to last. You're suddenly faced with, with the true mortality factor. Um, in terms of the trip to New York, I think really uh, it was for both of us finally in the end. I, I did worry I was looking at, um, you know, like travel sites where people had posted about taking their elderly parents to New York City. And some of them were like, oh, that's just terrible to foist something on as busy and horrible in New York and your poor aged parents are not going to have a nice time and it's really all about you and I thought well this is this is actually definitely about me but I I really believe it, it was also for him and and he he really he got so much out of it there was there was so much joy um and his response to the art and um even just the travel together and the time together that I, I do think it was for both of us in the end but I did I did worry a little that it was a little more for me but ultimately mm. he would probably be 
be happy to have provided that too. You know, even if he yes. had gone and if right. it, it didn't go as well, um, you know, he, he still, I think, would have felt like if it was important to me, it was important to him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting when you start to see, have that sense. So you're talking about the trips of your parents aging and you become really aware of the, the time that you have with them is not as long as, and it just, it seems to happen at a time in your life when you are really in a place in your own life where you're appreciating them in all they've done and all their accomplishments and have this sense of respect for them. And that's when you realize uh, that they're not going to be in your life probably for that much longer. So mm. um, good for you going to New York. And wow. that's, uh, that would be daunting. <laughs> it was a little daunting. It was definitely, you know, I, I worried that, that he would get lost or um, I don't know, have a health problem or, or something. But at the same time, it was some real adventure. It had a real adventure feel to it. Like right. we're going to do this and it wasn't recommended necessarily, but we're going to do it anyway. Right. <laughs> yes. And it, it wasn't recommended because I believe, didn't it happen not long after your dad's diagnosis and you did ask a doctor and I hope I'm not conflating three stories here, but I think you asked a doctor, would it be okay for dad to do this? And although you went ahead and you did it. I remember vividly when you were going off to do something for a few hours, but you really worried about leaving your dad alone in the hotel room. And I had this moment where I felt all of your mom instincts as well as your daughter instincts kick in. It was like, wait, I have to get dad's stuff out for him because normally this is what he would want to do. So I guess I'll just put stuff out for him. Maybe this is what he'll want to do while I'm gone. But you worried constantly that you had left him and something might happen to him. And when you get back, of course, he's, well, maybe you can tell us the story. You know, you disappear for a few hours to do an interview with another artist and you come back to the hotel room and you find your dad. Well, I, so the stuff that I got out for my dad um, was his drawing supplies. So he always brings his artist tools with him anywhere he goes, all of those various trips he's taken throughout his life. But they're a bit pared down now because he actually can't lift the kind of suitcases he would have brought in the past. And also it was definitely overkill. <laughs> so now, you know, he has a much smaller so setup of, you know, of papers, um, and uh pens and um i don't even think he brought any paint but he brought some ink with him and i it, it totally was my mom instinct i knew i was going to have to leave him and i was concerned that he would um, let himself out into the hallway and then become confused he had he had a diagnosis of dementia at the time and he was still doing fairly well but at the same time i think one of those hotel hallways would be incredibly confusing he wasn't at home yes it, it could just really throw him off but I had the interview booked and I didn't want to cancel it, but I couldn't really bring my dad. So I thought just as I would with, with uh, my children, actually, I thought, okay, I'll get his drawing supplies out of his bag and I'll set him up at the table and he will draw and I will go do this interview. And then I left and I panicked the whole time. It was just, you know, that sort of heart yes. racing panic where I could not get the image out of my head of my dad somehow leaving through the revolving door to the hotel and out into New York city. And that was it. I was never going to see him again. Mm. So, um, it, it was fine. I came back, I came back and he was there and he had drawn three new, uh, three new pieces. Um, he had inspired. created art. Yeah. Right? 
Yeah. He had done what he does. And, you know, and that was I, the power of that for me and the way you looked at it. I mean, because you look at each of his pieces of art, like more than art, right? You literally look at them like they're almost siblings of yours, almost like they're, they're, they're creations of his in every way, reflective of him. And also what you call, you know, another, the language that he speaks that you have learned how to recognize. And I, I have this visceral feeling of every time you see something your father's just created. And I had it then in the hotel room. And uh, I think everybody who reads your book is going to have a re, they're going to re-experience their own loving relationships as you re-experience your dad. I mean, it really is a love story in every possible way, both to his art and to his life and to your daughterhood. And um, I, uh, I found it so moving in pieces because I haven't found a way to revisit my own relationship with my father and it, and you having art to do that as a language, a lens through which to explore your life with your dad is just spectacular and um, must move you to pieces all the time. <sighs> yeah, I definitely, I see more in my dad's work, I think, than, um, than anyone else would, you know, well, except for my siblings, of course, um, yes. and, and my mom, but you, you know, you see, because he takes uh, his sketches, and then he he transforms them, mm -hmm. but there's a nugget of whatever it was that he was first inspired by always in the pieces that he comes up with at the end. And, and often I can see that nugget. And so I understand the transformation and I know the landscape that inspired it. Mm -hmm. um, not always though. I mean, my siblings who uh, are older than me and, and had my dad um, had them with his first wife and they had a whole life before I even came around. So there's, you know, a lot of yeah. pieces that they would look at and they would be able yeah. to say, oh yeah, I know that landscape and, and I wouldn't, but um, yeah. I, I wonder if it's too early to ask you to read a little bit for us because we're stepping into that space of how he creates and I didn't want to give this away on our podcast of the ex the kitchen table and your dad's your dad's board with his mm -hmm. you know his pinned early sketches because that is such an evocative thread of how he he creates but if you'd read the epilogue for us where uh you you give us a scene of your dad I would absolutely love that um even uh, if it is a little early in the podcast Sure, I would be happy to do that. Okay, so the epilogue um, has a title and the title is Sunset. My father was visiting and we were out for a walk with the dog. It was early January, 2020 and unseasonably warm. Water pooled along the sidewalk beneath our feet. There was some ice, so I took my father's arm. My mother was running errands. My children were at school, Andrew at work. The morning was quiet. The dog stopped to sniff a crusted snowbank and we stopped with him. It had been nearly a year since my father had had his pacemaker installed and a few years since his doctor had raised the possibility of dementia. Time had moved on. We were speaking about the undergraduate course I'd recently started teaching. It was about writing, but visual art had crept in. I've been sharing images of artworks with my writing students. Which ones? Mark Rothko's, orange, red, yellow, this was an abstract painting from the early 60s with hovering squares of color, as bright and as startling as a hallucination. My father had known Rothko's work since he was a young art student. Sunset, my father said, which is how art writers often describe the ethos of this piece. Who else? Morris Lewis, his most famous one, I said, forgetting the title of the painting. Lewis had been one of the earliest color field painters, Rothko's contemporary. My father paused, looked up at the sky, which was gray and without texture. Then he turned back to me. 
mostly blank canvas. The lines of color move in on the diagonal from either side. Yes, that's the one. I thought back to the previous month when I'd accompanied my dad to visit his geriatrician. A nurse had administered a series of memory tests. In one, he was given a grouping of unrelated words to remember, to hold on to, she'd said. When asked to repeat the list of words a few minutes later, he'd shaken his head. It would just be a guess at this point. And yet today, on this dull, overcast morning, he pulled effortlessly from his image bank. Sunset, mostly blank canvas. The lines of color move in on the diagonal from either side. This was a different kind of art viewing journey than we'd taken in the past. We walked slowly along the icy sidewalk, as if from painting to painting in an art gallery. There were no walls, only the crisp winter air, and yet there we stood, side by side, conjuring the work as if it were in front of us, talking about art as we'd always done. Later in the day, my mother returned from running errands and Andrew came home from work. Our children, who'd been back from school for a few hours by then, were buzzing around the living room, seeking attention. A friend stopped by with her timid dog and the animal skulked in the front entranceway. Our own mutt barked in at us through the glass of the back door, affronted by his exclusion. My father was sitting quietly on the couch. He caught my eye, pointed at the old war trunk that we used as a coffee table, the one he'd sketched while visiting us in Victoria for what was to become the electric pink painting, Strongbox One. He ran his hand along the corners, which were buffeted in metal, and across the worn leather and remnants of paint on its sides. Do you have a piece of paper? I knew what he wanted. Not office paper, something thicker. I found one of my daughter's old sketchbooks and tore him out a single page. Do you need a pen? No, I always have a few, he said, then fished three pens from his front pocket, chose one, and began to draw the war chest for the 15th, 20th, maybe the 30th time since he'd first sketched it seven years before. Both dogs were inside now. One snarled at the other. The conversation turned to architecture and heritage and how property developers were erasing the past. My daughter began playing the piano in the next room. My son, lying on the living room floor, was singing softly as he ran his toy cars along the carpet. In the center, my father sat sketching, transported to that unreachable place, the landscape of his imagination, as life carried on all around him. Thank you, Emily Urquhart, reading from The Age of Creativity, Art, Memory, My Father and Me. You know, we'd be remiss to not ask about when you examine your parents as very well-known creatives, I call them, you know, artistic liter literati in Canada. They are royalty in Canada. You know, we interviewed Alison Waring, let me step into it this way, uh, about her moments of glad grace. And we discussed how there's a difference between lineage and legacy and um, lineage being where you come from, who you are, how you're drawn from, legacy being what you leave behind, what people will then think of you. You know, they're representations of two sides of the same coin and as we explore our history. But I wondered, you have famous creative parents and the book explores how 
remarkable. Your father's artistic life has been even before it was his elder life. How do you feel about work ahead of you now that you've explored sort of the swan song mentality? I mean, do you see I've got 50 years of creative life ahead of me or maybe like Sandy and I have this conversation, we're at the, how many more books can we get out of ourselves before, <laughs> before our brain runs out, right? I mean, I, I keep saying, you know, I'm a dozen books in, I, I coach a dozen books a year, 54, how many more memoirs have I got in me? <laughs> but how do you feel about the creative life for you as a writer now? I, I think definitely uh, always from, you know, even from childhood and young adulthood, I've, I've seen my parents uh, work in creative careers and work creatively. My dad, well, both of my parents have a, a strong work work ethic, but my father's work ethic, he actually had was forced into early retirement at 65. And uh, it was the Mike Harris years. It was just a yes. kind of a fluke that he happened to be working at that point and that age. Uh, he could have taught for at least definitely another 10, maybe 15 years. He loved teaching art. And that was also how um, he supported our family. But his work ethic just did not um, dim in any way when that happened. It was still like you eat your breakfast and then you get to yes. work. You go out to the studio, you sit down, you get to work. And he did a lot of volunteer work actually as well with different galleries uh, locally where we lived. But um, so it didn't, it never occurred to me um, that anyone necessarily retires because I haven't seen my parents retire. <laughs> and um, of course people retire, but uh, in terms of, you know, you always sort of set your defaults to like, well, what did my parents do? What did their life look like? And uh, there is, yeah. there is no retirement and, and no, no urge or want for it either because the creative life fulfills them. It isn't something that is um, making them, well, probably does exhaust them in some ways, but um so, so I think definitely I, I haven't worried too much about, about uh, you know, how much more I, I have, um, much more time I have left, particularly watching my father work into his 80s right. and, um, and even my mother too, who's in her early 70s. And so, uh, yeah, and then writing this book, yeah. mm -hmm. I think really changed things. Um, or maybe it didn't change, but solidified that idea for me that wonder, there is no retirement. <laughs> did it change for you, Sandy? Did you get that same feeling of, you know what, I can do this for forever. I mean, did you have that reaction to it? I loved that part of what yeah. this gave to me. Yeah. And, you know, I think the word retiring is interesting. My husband's 65 and um, he just took a new contract and uh, with his work. And we talk about this a lot because it's, are you retiring from something or are you retiring to something? Like, what is this retiring concept that um, neither one of us, we've both been self-employed our entire lives. So we, we haven't had that kind of, you know, government job where you, you know, look forward to the handshake and the watch and the party and you're done. Um, it's always going to be our choice when we finish. Um, and when we just, or if we keep going. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, Patty. And um, I really appreciated the book because it's something that I fa I've been facing. Uh, I don't know as much externally or internally the angst around aging and what, what does that mean for me in terms of who I am. And I wanted to ask you, I'm going to segue into a question that I had wanted to ask earlier um 
you wrote, what was the same for Elva and Pat were the ways in which performance informed identity. Creative work, both amateur and professional, was sustaining both women in their third acts. And that really stuck with me. And the question I had for you was, it seems when I was younger, like in my 50s, um, the emphasis was around moving away from performance as a woman and stepping into being. And there was this whole thing about, I don't need my work to define me. And so then this idea about coming back into that later in life and where performance can give me an identity, I, I just have been sitting with that. And I, I wonder like what your thoughts are on that. I, yeah, well, I think uh, it's particularly a question for, for women, really. I mean, I understand that it, it also affects men, but I think as women, as as we age, we have that sort of invisibility, the um, mask of age, as a term I recently heard, um, where uh, you're not taken as seriously or or you're supposed to disappear, which is why there was a there's a painting I talk about in the book where uh, American artist Alice Neal in, in 1980, yes. when she was 80 years old, she posed fully nude and yes. uh, did a self-portrait of herself. Yes. And it's amazing. It's incredible. And, and and it was outrageous. You can imagine like she's like the taboo of that, like a woman's older body nude, like really it shouldn't be outrageous at all. Right. <laughs> and, and that's, that's a kind of performance. Or shameful. Yeah. Yes. Indeed. Yes. Right. That's, that's, that's a better word for it. Actually that, that sort of, you should be ashamed of yourself. You should, yes. but that's, but I think we need to turn that around. And I think that is slowly, turning around and, and in terms of, of performance um i think i think that women are probably becoming tired of that sort of like you're supposed to hide yourself away and, and not perform yourself so mm -hmm. um yeah i'm hoping that that does turn around but I, but it's very real too it's a real barrier sure. i mean even if you look at um I, I i didn't include this in the book but i did interview a woman performer a musician who um she was i don't know she might have been like she was like 51 or something. She was, she was young and, and her agent had recently dropped her and it was due to age. And I thought, Oh God, you know, she's going to, she's, she's a career ahead of her. She could yeah. have another 30 years of, of a yeah. strong performing career. And this person is yeah. dropping her. And so I think women face a huge uphill battle with performance. Mm -hmm. as Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, there's, cause there's something about whether we feel we can or we give ourselves permission or mm -hmm. this idea of what society uh, expects that we can, right? And with all art, there's always this, am I going to be able to do it? Which uh, steps in beautifully to the, how did you know you could do this book? Because this is a very ambitious book for mm -hmm. anyone. This isn't just a memoir. This isn't, and I'll, I'll go into a list of things I made. I said, the, the content threads that you have in this, uh, you deftly carry art, art history, the lives of artists, your study of many works of art, the interviews, marrying all of that with father, loss, belonging, attachment, and the story of his aging and changing before your eyes, which was the palpable memoir thread in here. But, you know, and you write that Sarah McLaughlin called you at, I think, nine o'clock on a Friday and said that you, you realized you could write this book. But even then, did you have your doubts? Did you feel that impression of, should I, could I, is this a book? Is, when is this, that whole idea that when we create art, there is the, 
the judgment creeping in on us of, is this a marketable book, a saleable book? Can I do this? Am I doing too much here? Should I reveal dad's life here? Did you have those questions for yourself in figuring out what this book could be? Yeah, definitely. From the, I had, I had um, questions and doubts uh, going into it and, and throughout as well. I mean, one of, one of my concerns was that I'm in my forties and, and do I even like have, like, yeah. is it audacious for me to write about aging and creativity? Ah, but right. then I thought, you know, I have worked as a journalist for 20 years now and I have covered topics way outside of my scope and my own <laughs> experience. So I thought, I feel, I, I think that's okay. As long as it's closely observed and, and um, has enough to, to, to back up whatever claims that I make. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, I had a lot of doubts about how to put the book together. And actually it was much harder than my first book. Um, I, I initially, it was a very quick process, the way the book came about. It, I started with an article that I published in the Walrus magazine. And then this, there's this amazing program where um, a, a generous funder had created an imprint at Anansi so that articles that were in the walrus could be expanded into books because mm. what the walrus was finding was that um and this is what i did too actually with my first book is that i published an article in that magazine and then i expanded it into a book but i published with harper collins so they ah. wanted to find a way to um give give nonfiction writers the space and time to create these books but also um still have their stamp on it maybe it's saying like this is where it came from and and so it's a amazing program and I love the topic that I was working on the aging and creativity had really taken me but I hadn't put I hadn't thought of creating it into a book until um, this this idea was presented to me through this program and that was Sarah phoning me up saying hey there's this thing I want to talk to you about and I had to put on Paw Patrol for the kids and like (laughs) (laughs) go upstairs and listen and she she's um Sarah McLaughlin, who is the um, publisher of Anansi, or yeah. was, she is not anymore, but she's a, she's a real force, and you don't really want to say no to her, <laughs> but she's also really brilliant, like she is able to, she was able to see what this book could be, and that I could do it in a way that I couldn't see, so it was, it's nice to have people who have that kind of certainty, because I'm not ever filled with certainty, I always have questions. Really? <laughs> Yeah, you write, but even, you write with powerful certainty, yeah, which is one of the do. things I enjoy. It's masterful, and and I think you're you're you know maybe tell the listeners here how varied your your background is in terms of training and skill, which I've always found fascinating. You don't just have a PhD in folklore. My God, how incredible! But you have a journalistic background as well, and have now written to. Uh, two massive pieces of nonfiction, which by anyone's stretch are memoir at their essence as well as creative nonfiction, right? I mean, how did you call on all your skills for that is my short question. <laughs> Where did you well, get them? <laughs> I, you know, I, so I, yes, I have, I trained to be a journalist. I did my undergraduate degree in art history. And then of course, also through osmosis learned quite a lot about art, um, <laughs> through, you know, just living with my family, but traveling with my dad and and then I went to journalism school and I thought what I would do is become an art writer, um, which in some ways, in some ways I have and not, not in the way I kind of expected. I sort of saw myself as like the art critic for some newspaper or, <laughs> uh, yeah. but anyhow, I, I truthfully, the way I write about art, I like to write about the artists and their background as well. And yeah. it wouldn't have worked as well to be a critic. Um, 
Mm. And, uh, and then I also have a doctorate in folklore, which in some ways didn't really play into the book so much, but it did, it does. Uh, I learned how to, I learned how to be a good researcher. Um, <sighs> and, and that definitely helped with the writing of this book and where to research and how, and all of, all of those skills. But uh, yeah, the, in terms of the book, when I when I wrote up my very quick after Sarah talked to me pitch for what the book could be to present it to see if if um, you know they might want to go ahead with this idea, it was um, it was the through line was still there, the, or I guess the overall theme aging and creativity. But I had seen it as more of a kind of info driven book with my father's narrative being woven in, but in a in a much smaller way, sort of like you know, a little story that, you know, f follows throughout the, the larger big picture idea. Um, I don't know what I was thinking. I thought like, maybe I could write like Malcolm Gladwell, but it turns out I can't like, it's not, there's only one <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell and he writes his book and I write mine. And I, and I, I you know, honestly, that's the way I approached my first book too, because I, I really love the mm. research and I, your titles are way focused. better than Malcolm Gladwell, by the way, your titles are way better. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, I just want to let you know. Yeah. Oh, that's well, that's good. Well, I've got one up on him. <laughs> but yeah, no, I thought it would be more of an info, like a like a big idea book, you know, yeah. like you take this idea, and it's a big idea. And then you you um, there are some narrative stories that support that idea. But okay. what happened is it flipped. And then uh, it was the, the memoir, the personal narrative that that started taking uh, more shape and form of the book. And the big ideas were kind of the, the backbone in the end. Wow. And I also started working with a writing group and that was helpful because what oh, they really, really responded to were the personal stories. Yep. Of course. Yes. So. Yeah. Memoir rules, as I like to yeah. say. Yeah, it's yes. true. It's true. Yeah. Well, before we move into our final questions, I mean, we could talk to you for a long time. I want to say that I appreciate your, um, that you were not in your 60s or 70s writing this book you know the question you said about can i approach this at 40 i think yes there was something in it for me where it wasn't a defense of aging from a woman like if i had wrote it it would it would be hard not to feel like i'm trying to defend creativity yes. as an aging woman but for you it was a, more of a celebration and exploration of what can be so i think it was great mm -hmm. that it was written mm -hmm. by someone who wasn't experiencing it in her yes. life agreed that's great. I never thought about it that way. Thank yeah, you. In the way, in the way you are, you become a champion, not a, not in a defensive posture. And yeah. I uh, I thought that was really powerful. It worked exceptionally well. And you were um you the pieces that you bring in around your art exploration and the stories of artists were so admiring of the artists, regardless of their age. That it also gave me a different um a a different way to address my own ageism and ableism and every other ism I'm walking around with. I mean, it really lets the reader in a kind of uh, sneaky way examine our own presumptions. And, you know, I love that because I want to spend the rest of my life taking on these presumptions, especially around visual stigma, but you did it around the way we live our lives and when we choose to be creative. I thought it was, uh, it was a lesson for all of us and you did it so subtly. I didn't feel bopped on the nose. But I mean, I started it with all, I, we all carry these isms around with us. And sure um, I mean, I, I can't say that I, you know, I read, or I wrote this book and then I'm cured of them. It's a constant <laughs> process. You know, you get to keep examining yourself and asking sure. the questions of why you're reacting the way you are, or what, where these thoughts come from. But mm. yeah. 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 Good. 
Well, I think we'll, we can move into these final questions, these closing questions. And one let's of hit her hard is, with them, Sandy. Come on, yes, let's hit her hard with them. Okay. <laughs> it's, this one has been one of my favorites is what is your favorite memoir? This is a very hard question. Is that everyone's answer to that? <laughs> no, nope. some people uh, cheat. Nope. <laughs> I, I didn't cheat. I, I have one singular favorite and I like it so much that I always say it. And then I, I had to, and this is a guilty story. She's also a podcaster, Katie Hafner. I wrote her a note last week and said, listen, your new podcast is great. And I got to tell you, I tell everyone your book is still my favorite, unabashed. So if you have an unabashed favorite, it's okay oh. to say, Emily. And if you don't, give it to us, girl. I don't. I, I really, there are so many, when you said that, I, I had, I had an idea prepared of three stories that I had three good. memoirs, but then Great. I was like, oh, but Mary Carr. I know, but Mary Carr, but Danny Shapiro, I know. Oh, Danny Shapiro. I know. Yes. Oh no, now I've done it. So who else is, just give us your list. Who's on your list? Oh my gosh. So I thought of, I thought of three fairly recent memoirs just because I, I just, Oh my God, my list would be endless. But um, one of the, I have two of them with me, actually. <laughs> one is uh, After Visiting Friends by Michael Haney. And uh, he is the, or he was when he wrote this, the editor-in-chief of GQ. So he's a journalist. And I kind of expected a more journalistic story, but it's, it's, it's a story about his parents, um, about his father's disappearance. And, and, right. and he's going back and trying to uncover what happened it's written like a prose poem. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, I thought it, I, I kind of thought I was picking up this sort of true crime book and, and written by a journalist. I, I expected something totally different. It's a beautiful work. Yeah. Right. And um, I don't know if it got much play. I'm sure it did. I mean, like, obviously he's a, a big writer in the U S he's the editor of GQ, but um, not as much as I thought it should. And then another uh, recent memoir that I do that has stayed with me in particular for its form again is um Therese Marie uh Mayo yep or Mayo Heartberries. 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 yes yes um that was such an interesting book I mean it, it it defied really all all rules you know it yes. went back and forth in time and you weren't necessarily clear where you were at any or what, yes. what point chronologically you were but it really didn't matter and it was very mm. beautiful and kind of dreamlike yes um i think i feel like i should read that book again actually mm. because it was I do it too. like anything i'd ever read before and so that has really stuck with me and then oh yeah i'm i have to say another poet a poet actually lorna crozier oh, i yeah. just finished her latest memoir um mm -hmm. through the garden she's on my book stack that that memoir is because her poetry is breathtaking her poetry is breathtaking, and I, I teach a creative nonfiction course, and uh, in it, I always tell my students that you should, first of all, read poetry, oh, yeah. uh, but you should also read uh, prose written by poets because they are the people who care the most about language, and yes. they're going to teach you the yeah. most. And so yes. reading Lorna Crozier's Through the Garden, it was just, it was, it was quite sad, but it was beautiful, mm -hmm. and and the story, I think, probably has a special resonance for me as well, because Lorna and Pat are, are um, you know, they're similar to my own parents in a way, this artistic couple that's uh, yeah. of, of the same generation. And it was interesting to, to read about her, her sort of get, get a little bit of a, a insight into that life. Mm. And also, 
the uh, <laughs> the subtitle is a love story with cats. And honestly, like, <laughs> who doesn't want to pick up that book? Her sense, her sense of humor. Her sense of humor is just incredible. <laughs> exactly. And I love the cats. Honestly, the cats, I'm not going to, there's no spoilers here, but there was a point where I actually had to put that book down and just take a little breather and it had to do with the cat. <laughs> it was very emotional. I like cats oh, too. <laughs> wow. Oh, good warning though. Thanks for that yeah. warning. <laughs> Thank you for those recommendations. I Beautiful. actually have someone on my Christmas list for each book. Like when you were describing them, oh, I was like, oh, I'm getting that for them. I'm getting that for her. <laughs> so thank oh, good, you. good. Absolutely do that. <laughs> the year of sending books to people because we won't be going shopping. Exactly. I know, exactly. I know. Great. Um, so our, our, I don't know if we've talked about this one now. What are you working on next? Have we covered mm. that? I'm not sure. And th this we... time, are you going to keep your word to me, Emily, or are you going to make it up? <laughs> so let me, tell, let me tell the listeners that when Emily and I met in, oh, I don't know, we had a few conversations back in maybe 2015, 2016, <laughs> and we were speaking about her then memoir, Beyond the Pale, and my memoir, earlier version of now what is now loving large and I said to her like do you think you'll write more about this and she said you know Patty like I don't have another book in me right now <laughs> and I remember this being I know and we always say that until we start the next book so what do you what do you are you in that feeling right now too of oh, promoting this one I don't have another one in me or do you have something new in the works tell us tell us true well I do have something in the works right now um I it is it is hard to work on something else when you're promoting a book for sure. sure. And it's also uh, I wouldn't say that I'm at my most productive presently. <laughs> the whole pandemic what? thing. What? The... <laughs> That's not happening to anyone else. <laughs> always being here. Although they now that they've my children went back to school in September and I was promoting the book, but I also got to start on a, a new project. It's a collection of essays and some of them have, well, about half of them have already been published, but right. I'm working on another, I don't, I'm not exactly sure, probably five or six. Great. And um, I have been thinking about them for a long time and I was finally able to pull the trigger on one story uh, that I have been looking, fun, hoping to, to look into and learn more about for two years now. Ah. But I just couldn't find the time and I finally found the time uh, this fall. And so I've been working on a, I don't exactly know where it's going yet, but it's a story about uh, a woman who was a famous psychic who lived in the small town over from where I grew up, which is bizarre in itself because it, they were very sort of religious Mennonite small towns that, that um, both of the towns of one I lived in and the one she lived in, but she was really famous and she drew people from all over North America. There were always lines of cars outside of her door wanting to talk to her. She solved a lot of murders, really? found bodies. And uh, I actually, I came across a tiny little display about her um, two years ago. I, I was actually working on the age of creativity. I'd gone to interview Martha Henry in Stratford, Ontario, and her publicist told me I had to go to the archive to see the show about Martha. And so I went to the archive, but I went to the wrong one. <laughs> There's actually a festival archive and the actual Stratford archive. And I ended up at the Stratford archive. And that is where I saw a tiny little display about this psychic who I had never heard of. And there, her shoes were in the display. <laughs> These wow. high heel, wow. bizarre shoes with the sort of red interior. And I was just like, okay. I don't know. Find out more about her. <laughs> I need to yeah. know about who this person is. So wow. that's what I've been doing this fall. I've been trying oh to learn gosh. how, like, 
psychics work and wow. <laughs> tracking down some of the people Exciting. who she was involved with. And this is just for one of the stories in the collection. But the collection is basically it's about the supernatural in the everyday. Mm. Mm. that's great oh. that's the theme yeah yeah Boy, i look forward to that yeah you have too. a lot more i'm sure you have a lot more planned in the promotion you're just early in the promotion so where can people find out more about how to connect with you i know you are you are perilously private i remember us talking about that so where can people find out what you're up to where you're promoting your book where they can find out more about you that's great you know i should probably work on that <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed to be private. <laughs> I uh, I don't have any social media, <laughs> which my publicist was thrilled to hear about. I'm sure. But <laughs> and um, but uh, yeah, I do have a website which people can get in touch with me through. But in terms of finding the book, um, you can you can find it through the Anansi website right. and um, also at various independent bookstores throughout the country and you'll be doing uh, yeah. a lot of virtual events do you have a lot more virtual events i don't planned? have a i don't have a lot more virtual yeah. events planned at this point i did a lot this fall leading up to mm. now i think i can't remember Oops. did about uh, who knows maybe 10 different events and mm. i feel very comfortable with the zoom platform now so that, i bet you do <laughs> don't we all yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so i'm afraid i don't have anything to promote mm. coming up anytime soon but um uh, maybe down the road who knows <laughs> fantastic <laughs> great thank you well it's been wonderful having you on reframe your life and it's definitely been a reframe for us about aging and yes family relationships and creativity so um thank you thank you thank Emily. you thank you it's so nice to be here Hi, it's Sandy here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reframe Your Life. If you've been enjoying our episodes and the interviews that we've been bringing you each week, we'd appreciate it if you would help us get the word out about our podcast. The best way is to share it with a friend and leave a review for us where you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about my work, you can find me at sandyreynolds.com. I have a special PDF file available with my newsletter for anyone who struggled with people pleasing. And if you're interested in finding out more about the writing process and crafting your own memoir, check out pattymhall.com. And thank you for listening.